So again, let yourself sit in a way that's at ease or comfortable. You can listen to the kids and the turkeys and all those sounds from out there in a spring evening. Sometimes it's hard to tell them apart. So last week, for those who were here on Monday, we had the pleasure of listening to Stephen Batchelor um, speak from his new translations of Nagarjuna, one of the greatest of the, all of the Buddhist um, teachers and um, poets and philosophers. And one of the things that Nagarjuna emphasizes that I thought Stephen spoke of in a, with such a beautiful metaphor, um, is the teachings of emptiness or openness. He used that image of finding a path where Nagarjuna, this Buddhist teacher and elder, says that um, the true path or the middle path is the same as emptiness, and that finding that emptiness or finding oneself on a path through the woods or the fields, if you look actually at what a path is, it is simply an openness that allows for seeing, for knowing, for movement. And that in that sense, the word emptiness that's sometimes translated means an opening, or an openness. So how to find our own path? How to find or follow this path? Tonight, um, I'd like to go back to the basics, which I do periodically after we have other teachings, and return to um, one of the simple and basic teachings that helps understand how to find that openness or path in our own inner experience. My teacher, Ajahn Chah, said that if you wish to know the nature of the world, and to discover what the Buddha did, which is the freedom in the midst of all the things of the world, all you have to do is take a seat in the center of the room, open the doors and windows, and allow all the actors, the scenes, the temptations, all the stuff of life to show you its truth. And your simple task is just to stay in the seat and keep your eyes open and your heart open. Small things. So when we undertake the practice of meditation to awaken is first to find our own seat, to sit and connect with this earth out of which we've been born. And to take this seat halfway between heaven and earth as we do and sit upright like a Buddha under our own tree of enlightenment. And to sense, first of all, the right to be here, which is what the Buddha sought on his night of enlightenment, that we are a child of this earth, and that our being here isn't a mistake, which some people feel at times. And I know on bad days it may seem like that especially. 
but to realize that we are born of this earth and as the Buddha did, we and our own Buddha nature have the same right to sit upon this earth and to remember this great human capacity to awaken. The Buddhist teaching is often called the the lion's roar in the texts um, because he was challenged a number of times on the night of his enlightenment when one reads that myth, all the temptations and delights and uh, aggressions and all the great forces of Mara, the, um, the god of illusions, or Mara, the evil one, there are all kinds of translations for Mara, came and the Buddha sat in the midst of them all and touched the earth and asked the earth to bear witness to his right to sit on this earth as a human being and awaken. And then other people would come to the Buddha after his enlightenment um, and they would challenge him as Mara did on the night of awakening and say, you, you're living an easy life now. You know, people feed you and you live more comfortably and we're the real ascetics. We're the ones who have the right to awaken. And the Buddha would look back at them as it's written in these stories and say, whatever ascetic practices that there are, on the face of this earth, sleeping on beds of nails and walking across the desert in the hot sun with one's eyes open and fasting until one eats but one grain of rice a day. Whatever those practices are, I've done them all. I've seen and tasted and practiced them all. And now I have stopped. I've stopped torturing myself. I've stopped losing myself. I've stopped being lost in anything of the world, either for or against, toward or away from, which is what Nagarjuna was teaching. And in the midst of the 10,000 universes, the heavens and hells, the joys and sorrows, the realms of the devas and the angels, of the nagas and the hungry ghosts, I have taken my seat, taken this one seat, and awakened the heart of compassion and the eye of liberation, to see it all as it is and be unmoved by it except through the response of the heart. So this was his lion's roar. And in some way, many of us could make our own kind of a lion's roar because we've tried a lot of things too. Consumerism, you know, money, that's okay. Travel, sex, um, rock and roll, um, (laughs) self-improvement, the gym, countless amount of workshops, various spiritual practices, um, you know, all the kinds of things that we've tried to make ourselves happy. Accumulating things, garage sales, getting rid of things, you know, then accumulating more things. You know how it works trying to make things better for ourselves in different ways. Remember, Woody Allen at one point said, yes, I decided I was going to read all the great literature. I took a course in speed reading. He said, I read War and Peace in 30 minutes. It's about Russia, he said. (laughs) I remember when I was teaching at Esalen, Oh, 25 or 30 years ago in the early 70s. And at that time, pyramid power, one of the, one of the years I was living at Esalen, came in 
And so there were all these teachings about staying in the center of the pyramid and how through the crown chakra the energies of the universe would come into your body. And one person came through at Esalen peddling pyramid hats, which were made out of copper, these little pyramid hats. So for that particular year, there were a lot of people walking around Esalen with these funny little copper hats on, channeling pyramid powder power. You laugh, I know. But we've all done something or other that we think, well, I'll do this, and then I'll do that, and I'll get that, and I'll have that, and then everything will be okay. But the problem is that the play of our mind is endless. The play of consciousness. And it creates endless wanting and endless dramas and endless stories. It's really the creator of all of this. And it's also rather unreliable, have you noticed? That what it creates one day... You know, two weeks later, you look at it and you say, Oh my God, oy vey, what did I do? You know, or Henry Miller, the writer, said it uh, had um, reached the heights of the absurd when one day I recognized that all I had written about this man, I could very well have written the opposite. That we see it one way in a moment with the mind, and then a little while later, we see it differently. So, what's the remedy? in the midst of all these possibilities and all the things we might do and get and have and become, the Buddha's remedy is the willingness to stop and take this simple seat in the center of the world and to raise up in our heart and mind the quality of pure awareness, of a sacred attention, and open ourselves to what is true in this human life. Sometimes, and I've said this, uh, I sort of referred to this last week with Stephen Batchelor here, in the Buddhist teachings and in my own expression of them, especially in early years, there's a kind of focus on overcoming aggression or greed or compulsion or confusion or laziness, working with all these difficult habits. But as I pay attention my own inner sense is that it all boils down to fear. That our hearts are frightened to let go, to touch all things in the world, to be here with things as they are. And to experience the mystery that we partake in as human beings and that no one can actually explain. Nagarjuna spoke of it as emptiness. That is this openness, this river that's changing. And we have a moment of experience and then it's gone and a new moment arises. Out of what? I ring the bell. And is it the bell that rings? Or is it your mind that rings? Or as one poet said, perhaps it is the between that is ringing. A poem. I can find this. By what miracle does this cracker made from Kansas wheat and this cheese ripened in French caves and this fig grown and dried near Ephesus turn into me? 
my hands, my eyes, my cells, organs, juices, thought. Am I not then Kansas wheat and French cheese mm. and Smyrna figs? The same figs, no doubt, the ancient prophets ate as well. It is a mystery that we exist out of this earth. Quite extraordinary. I mean, there's this food body. That's what it's made of, isn't it? You kind of take it seriously and think it's yours. But actually it's food. So the Buddha's instructions are to see what is true of this human existence and in seeing what's so, to find our freedom in it, to find a peace of heart and an openness in this very life. And you can see, we come to meditate, and even in the course of 40 minutes or one hour, there's thoughts and breath and sounds, and they come and go day and night, almost uh, endlessly, like some roaring stream inside there, and they appear out of nothing, and then you have this whole big thought train, fantastic. You know, you're choreographing an opera, or you're settling a vendetta, you know, or you're starting a dot-com company, or you're, you know, wherever you are, traveling. And it appears, and there's this whole experience, and then where does it go? Into nothing. Vanishes. Phenomenal. The breath does the same. It appears and disappears. Emotions come and go, like the weather. And the practice of meditation is this tremendously simple thing of just sitting and opening ourselves to see what is this human life made of. I say this at the end of retreats when I speak about someone's daily meditation practice because people get very idealistic. I want to sit and be calm. I want to be open. I want some beautiful state of bliss or samadhi or rapture or some insight or something, you know when actually you're invited simply to sit and be with the mystery of being human, with all its complexity. So the simple instructions I give are for daily practice to put your ass on the cushion and take what you get. (laughs) That's the Buddha's suggestion. (laughs) A little bit more colloquial about it. To be present and know what is true. I remember this friend, a wonderful woman named Jocelyn King, and her husband, Winston King, who was a Buddhist professor and, and uh, writer, went to Burma in the 1950s and 60s to write a number of books on the Buddhism of Southeast Asia and so forth. And she went along with him, and while he was busy writing his books, she went into several of the monasteries and did a lot of meditation on her own and got enlightened whatever that means. Anyway, we'll just say that for the sake of this story. And her husband was writing about it, and she was doing it, of course. (laughs) So I came to meet her um, later on when she was back in the U.S., and we were invited over to lunch one day, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, myself, and others in the mid-70s, and had a beautiful lunch talking about Burma and meditation and so forth. And then she said, will you help wash dishes? That's a very Buddhist thing to do. All right, we'll go wash the dishes together. Fine. (laughs) And we're washing the dishes, and she said, you know, I don't understand it, how many people prefer the quicksand of somethingness to the firm ground of emptiness. She continued washing her dishes. 
And what she meant is that we're always trying to fix this mystery and make it and hold it and hold our breath and get a state and have an experience and have things be a certain way. And when you actually stop and look, what do you experience? That it is always changing and that it's uncertain. That's about all you know. It's uncertain. It really, really is. And she rested in this uncertainty, and she was very happy. Her husband, however, was in a different place. Let's speak about Winston. So an invitation. This is how my teacher Ajahn Chah put it. He said, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. And then your mind and heart will become quiet in any surroundings. It will be, they will become still, like a clear forest pool. And all kinds of wonderful and rare animals will come to drink from it. Then you will clearly see the nature of all things in the world. You will see many wonderful and strange things come and go. But you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So we take this seat, and all these things arise, stories and plans and memories and childhood. And where's your childhood? It comes on the screen and then it disappears into this openness. We take this seat and see the nature of life as it is. Now to take the one seat calls for two different qualities, if you will. We could call them yin and yang, the receptive side and the side that has a great strength to it. The yin side is that of openness, of surrender, of a receptivity, a kind of vulnerability, if you will. Um, I've actually been sick a bit the last few weeks. I had the flu during Yucca Valley quite quite ill and fever and things like that. And it was the third time I've been sick with the flu this since January. And I was pretty sick last winter, so it made me think. I kind of stop a little bit. In fact, I got on the phone and canceled a bunch of things for the year. I had to make more space. Um, because your, when your body speaks, it's not like your doctor. You know, you can kind of ignore your doctor. <laughs> this is a little bit closer to home here. Anyway, I was, I was leading a... Uh, I was leading a little conference at Spirit Rock early in April, and I was still feeling better before Yucca Valley. And we had invited to it um, the heads of some kind of sister-brother organizations, the head of Noetics Institute and Esalen Institute, and certain foundations, the Fetzer Foundation and part of the Rockefeller Brothers Foundation and the Cummings Foundation, just to talk about collaborative work. And we started this little group by talking more personally about how we were doing and what was happening in our lives, which is a nice way to begin a conversation. And I said to this group, I said, you know, this last month I've been so busy teaching the month-long retreat in March and teaching at Mount Madonna and doing my classes and taking my teenage daughter to high school and doing all these things. And I said, I can teach pretty well. The talks I give are, I think, are helpful to people in the interviews and so forth. But I'm not very happy with it because I'm so busy that I don't feel very vulnerable when I do it. And I miss that. What I miss is when I speak with a person, or when I speak with a lot of people, as tonight, not just to put something out, but actually to be open myself, so that I feel it at the same time. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
And so the other way can be good and I go through the motions and it's beneficial, but there's something really deep that's missing. So getting sick has made me a little bit more vulnerable. It's, I don't think it's the solution to that problem <laughs> particularly. Um, but I realized that I want to change my life. And, and you know, it's not so easy because um, modern life has full of both responsibilities that we all have and a lot of temptations as well. Even good things are too much. Too many good things, you know. Um, so I'm trying to... And I have been on this for a couple of few years of how to change my life so that um, not only can I do what I do and remain healthy, but more than that, that I can do it in a way that I feel vulnerable. Because there's a positive vulnerability. It's not the vulnerability of being hurt, but the vulnerability of actually being present with a person or a, or a piece of music or, or, or a tree. One of my friends and respected colleague or teacher of martial arts, of Aikido, is Wendy Palmer, who teaches at the Tamil Pius Dojo in, in Mill Valley, among other places. And she's one of the senior women martial artists in the country. She's a fourth or fifth degree black belt in Aikido. And she's kind of a slight woman. She's not a big person. But she's done a lot of prison work in the last five or ten years. Beautiful work teaching in various prisons, meditation and Aikido. And the art of Aikido, founded by Osensei, who is this tiny little Japanese elderly man by the time he taught some of my friends in, in, in the 60s in Japan. Um, he had mastered all, many of the other great Japanese martial arts, karate and judo and so forth, but he wanted to create an art form that he did, Aikido, which was based on um, receptivity and harmony so that you wouldn't harm anyone with the martial arts, but you'd put yourself in harmony with the world. This was his principle. And there are these old, wonderful old black and white movies of, of um, him uh, with all these great martial artists kind of attacking him and him just kind of smiling and, you know, unaffected by them. But anyway, so Wendy goes in the prisons and works, and not only does she work with the prisoners, but once in a while she worked with the guards. And the story I heard, not from her, I don't think she would tell it, but from a friend. So she was in one of these large prisons and lecturing to the guards about how if you treat the situations of conflict with compassion and with some, that kind of respect of the heart, people feel it and there's a way in which then they won't harm you and you won't harm them. And this is the principle of Aikido, of harmonizing with what's so, even if it's a violent energy, to feel compassion and blend with it rather than... And she was going on and on and apparently she pissed off the guards basically <laughs> saying, you know, here's this little woman talking about harmonizing with, you know, these convicts, right? <laughs> So she, had, she got somebody annoyed enough that he started asking questions, what about this and what about that? And she was just shining him on, saying, no, no, harmonize and so forth. He got up and he was so angry that he actually attacked her. And um, she just smiled and there he was on the floor. <laughs> and this was somebody used to subduing people and quite a large man. And the conversation went on, and that was not very nice for the guards. They didn't like to see that. So the conversation got more heated. And then a couple of guards got up, big guys who were really knew how to subdue people, and said, you know, sometimes you have to use it, and went after her. And she just smiled, and they ended up on the floor. 
And that's how she taught them. <laughs> so it gave her a certain credibility, I think. So what's necessary in this taking of the one seat is both a receptivity or an openness and also a kind of strength or fearlessness. But it's not the strength of rigidity um, to fight against. It's more the strength of the Tao or what Gandhi and Martin Luther King spoke of as soul force. It's the strength of living one's convictions so totally that no matter what someone comes with you at, you are grounded in your own truth. And that's the invitation in our meditation, to rest in that place of truth. So here we sit, and we pay attention, and the breath comes. And sometimes it's even hard to find your breath. Do you think that's the breath's problem? You know? Maybe it's very, very soft. That's okay. What you need to do is turn down the kind of volume a little bit and see if you can make the receptivity of your heart and mind such that even if there's a soft breath, you let yourself actually feel it, like the breath of a baby. It's a wonderful thing. If it's long or short or you feel it here in the nose or it moves to the belly and you begin to re-inhabit your body, which is sensitivity, compassion, understanding grows from that. And as you feel the breath, then the body starts to open, not because you're trying to open the body, but you sit here and you take this seat and the sounds and breath come and then what starts to happen is the body begins to open and show itself. The pains that you've carried this week, you feel them because you're present. Or the tensions that have been stored up through the last month of trying to get your project done or the last year of whatever difficulties or whatever things that are carried in our body begin to show themselves and begin to open. There's the breath. Here's this human body with hot and cold and pleasure and pain. It's what it is. It shows itself. Then you get to the mind. My God, the stories, the worries, the plans... Roger Walsh, who I mentioned who's coming to lead this seminar in a 10 days or so, um, I remember when he came to his first Vipassana retreat, which almost 25 years ago or so, and he wrote a long article about it in one psychological journal, which um, we kind of laughingly titled um, Stanford Psychiatrist Loses It, basically. <laughs> because his description was he'd, you know, he'd gone through his psychiatric training and his analysis and various things like that. And then he came on a 10-day silent retreat. And he said, I had no idea how crazy my mind was. I was trying to be silent. And there, it, it has no pride, right? It will do anything. And it did. And he started to describe all the things. And one of the things he most disliked about it was its grandiosity, that he discovered that he'd be there. And then he would have all these world savior fantasies and all these great and so forth. And he said, then I sat with it and I felt what that really was about and I felt how small I really feel. And so these were all those, you know, compensatory fantasies of trying to inflate oneself because one actually feels so out of control. Now that's only Roger, but (laughs) other people too might discover the wandering mind, the scattered mind, the 
you know, the frightened mind, the, all the unfinished business, all these things, and all you have to do is take the seat and open yourself, and the mind shows you what it does. The joyful mind, the happy mind, the sad mind. In fact, then all the emotions come, the sorrows of the heart, our longing, our grief, uh, all the things of the heart, the, the shame we carry, the desire, the love, the creativity, all that kind of bubbles out from us. And then, of course, we also sit and feel the madness of the world that we carry in ourselves, the images of war, the images of greed, of hate, the racism, the hungry ghosts of the world that are really there in ourselves, they're part of us. And all that plays itself out. And we sit and become the space within which this great, it's like Shakespeare, all right, let's see this week's play. Let's see the drama. Tragedies, comedies, historical, you know, plays. We get to see them all with compassion. And spiritual life, if you look at it honestly, is not about having a spiritual experience. Because most of you in this room have had spiritual experiences. Probably all of you. It's natural to us. Spiritual life isn't about experience but really about how we live. So the truth is in spiritual life that we're not going anywhere, some special place. Where we're going is here, is in this human life as we have it, where we are. I mean, where else would we go? And to practice is to say, yes, this too. Ah, to bow to it over and over. To touch what arises with the heart of compassion, and to make this space of awakened attention big enough that we can embrace all of life and not be caught in it. Remember the story from the Christian Desert Fathers where one young monk went to the elderly abbot and said, what should I do if in our prayers in the early morning the young brother next to me falls asleep. Should I elbow him or pinch him to wake him up so he does his prayers? And the abbot said, Ah, if I were sitting next to him, I would reach over and put his head in my lap so that he could rest more easily. The idea in meditation isn't to fight against the life that we've been given. It's hard enough. But to touch it with awareness and compassion. We've kept moving so long, the busyness of our life, and then in that movement there comes possessiveness. Do you know what I mean? Clinging to things. My teacher Ajahn Chah said it's like you have an apple orchard. All right, you have a house and a garage and cars and possessions and computer and whatever you have, or your apartment or your condo or something. But he said, it's like an apple orchard. And here you have a hundred trees or a thousand trees. And all of a sudden, someone comes over the fence and they cut down one of your trees. And you are incensed. My tree! I mean, you have 99 other trees. Or you have 999 other trees, whatever it is. But somebody cut down your tree as if that's who you are. And so your trees start to own you. And your things start to own you. But is that who you really are? Is your stuff who you are? So that's the clinging that we get caught in. 
or we get caught in fighting against things. As Ajahn Chah said, we're at war against things. We're getting things that we don't want. We're not getting the things that we want. Things are too hot or too cold or too rainy or too dry or too short or too long. And we're always fighting against what? Against the way things are. Or we judge things. You know how easily we judge. We judge ourselves worst of all. And that's the place where there's the most judgment. But we judge everybody else too in the bargain. Suppose one morning you're walking to work, said Ajahn Shah, and a man starts yelling bad insults at you. And as soon as you hear these insults, your mind gets agitated and hot. You don't feel good. You feel angry. You feel hurt. You want to yell things back. You want to get evened at this person who's insulted you so terribly. A few days later, another person comes to your house and says, Hey, that man who abused you the other day, he's crazy. He's been the same way for years. He says that to everybody who walks by. Nobody takes notice of anything he says. And as soon as you hear this, you're suddenly relieved. Oh, it's not me. All that anger and resentment and desire for revenge that you pent up within you for a day till you're going to get back at him melts away. And why? Because now you know the truth. He wasn't talking about you at all. This is the way things are, said Ajahn Chah. Nobody's talking about you. So we sit, and what we're afraid of comes to us. If we have unwept tears and we're quiet, the grief that's ungrieved will come. If we have unlived love or creativity, that love will come. If we're afraid of death, death will come and visit us, it will. If we're afraid of life, That will show itself, and we'll be afraid of that as well. You get, as the Greek said, the whole catastrophe, right? So to meditate asks something very deep of us, a, a depth of a certain courage, and that is the courage to bring our attention and our love, our openness to it all, to this human life as we've been given it. And what I like about this form of meditation, there are many, many good forms of meditation, what I I like so much about the practice we do in the retreats of insight meditation is its incredible simplicity. I was drawn to it because of that. I mean, I love Tibetan Buddhism and, you know, the aesthetic of Zen, Zen koans and things like that. But my mind is so complicated and busy, I felt like I needed something really simple. And over the past 25 years or more of teaching, one of the things that's been a real um, love or dedication for, for me and friends is to keep the practice and the retreats that we teach very simple. Because there are all these other great things that we could put into the retreats. Um, massage and healing and therapy and painting and inquiry and all kinds of creative stuff that I really love and, in fact, that I do in my life, that I respect and get healing from. And it always seemed tempting, let's put this in and then we'll put that in and it would make it better. And I always say, no, let's not do it. Let's just have a retreat where people come and they're quiet and they don't do anything except be with themselves. 
because we live in such busy times and it's so easy for us to feed into this self-improvement. Think, well, I'll lower my shoulders and I'll fix my back and I'll work out through imagery this problem I have around money and I'll solve this and pretty soon we're back at work, basically, only on our cushion. (laughs) And we don't see the sunset that's there when we're on retreat because there's nothing to do but open to the mystery. Or we don't taste the strawberries that they give us at breakfast along with the oatmeal or whatever else is there. Um, And that's really the invitation, to taste the strawberry, to see the person that you live with when you come home as if you'd never seen them before or as if they were different, because they are actually different, or to see the sunset. And as we allow this simplicity, like Thoreau spoke of, that kind of simplicity at Walden Pond, then in its own way, a profound healing begins to happen, layer by layer. Because if we sit and we take this seat, Ajahn Chah talked about it as sitting and letting the screws loosen. And we're busy always kind of trying to keep the machine running, right? And all the things we're doing. He said, let the screws loosen. Turn them the other way. Just make space for things. As we do this, the body starts to open. The heart starts to soften. And maybe it weeps and rages and does all the things it needs to feel. The mind begins to quiet. And sometimes you get what I call the Freudian layer. You get all this stuff from your childhood and your mommy and daddy. And Sometimes it's even earlier that. And you get the whole sense of self showing itself, the, the body of fear, the small sense of self. But if we let ourselves sit with all this that arises and hold it with compassion and an openness, there comes a renewal, a rest, a a peace, um, a willingness just to be human as we are, which is really what love is born from. I want to read a story that I haven't read for about five years, but I used to read all the time. Um, and I don't, I haven't read it much because it's in Path with Heart, so most people have read it. But um, it's a, to me, it's a, it's a very wonderful account of meditation. And a a friend of mine who is a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School um, said that he felt it was the clearest account he'd ever read. This is a psychiatrist who's worked a lot with um, disturbances of the mind and how they take people over. He said he felt it was one of the clearest accounts he'd ever read of what healing really means in the heart and the mind. It's from... um, Lloyd Burton. I served as a medic with the Marine Corps in Vietnam in the early days of the war on the border of North and South Vietnam. Our casualty rates were high, as were those of the villagers we treated. It had been eight years since my return when I attended the first meditation retreat. At least twice a week. Oh, can you hear the bell? It's everybody being called back to the sitting up there. They know you're here, you know. So I think we're all sitting together with one another. It had been eight years since my return from Vietnam. 
when I attended my first meditation retreat. At least twice a week, for all those years, I'd sustained the same recurring nightmare common to many combat veterans, dreaming I was back there, facing the same dangers, witnessing the same incalculable suffering, waking suddenly alert, sweating, scared, night after night. At the retreat, the nightmares did not occur during sleep. They filled the mind's eye during the day. Horrific wartime flashbacks superimposed over a quiet redwood grove at the retreat center. Sleepy students in the dormitory became body parts in a makeshift morgue on the DMZ. I began to realize as I relived these memories that I was enduring for the first time the full emotional impact of experiences that as a, twen- as, as a 19-year-old medic I was simply unprepared to withstand. I began to realize as well that my mind was yielding memories so life-denying and terrifying that I'd ceased to be aware of them, that I was still carrying them around unconsciously. In short, I, undergo, I, I underwent a profound catharsis by openly facing that which I had most feared and therefore most strongly suppressed. But at the retreat, I was plagued by a more current fear that having released the inner demons of war, I would be unable to contain them, that they would now rule my days as well as my nights. Yet what I experienced instead was just the opposite. The visions of slain friends and dismembered children gradually gave way to other half-remembered scenes from that time and place. The intense beauty of a jungle forest, a thousand different shades of green, and fragrant breeze blowing over beaches so white and dazzling they seemed carpeted by diamonds. And what arose at the retreat for the first time was a deep sense of compassion for my past and present self, compassion for the idealistic would-be doctor forced to witness the unspeakable obscenities of which humankind is capable, and for the haunted veteran who could not let go of memories he could hardly acknowledge he carried. And since that retreat, the compassion has stayed with me. Through practice and inner opening, it has grown to sometimes encompass those around me as well. And while the memories have also stayed with me, the nightmares have not. The last of my sweating screams at night happened in silence, fully awake, somewhere on retreat over a decade ago. For each of us, as we open in meditation, we too, like Lloyd Burton, are asked, what does this body want to allow to be felt, to heal? What feelings need to be allowed to move and be felt within us, the joys or the sorrows? What story do we need to hear so we can accept it? What truth that we know deeply needs to be acknowledged consciously at this time?
To practice in this way is to awaken a faith. And the faith is really in our own goodness, our true nature, our Buddha nature. A faith in our heart's capacity to open to this world. And if we take the one seat and open our eyes and open our compassion, we can absolutely trust that it's possible to face our difficulties and survive. Because the heart of compassion is great enough to hold the sorrows of the world. Because they're already in us, they're a part of us, we are not separate than that. And if we take the one seat and open our eyes and our heart, we can have the faith that what we most deeply long for can be found because it's within us. Thoreau said, many men go fishing all their lives without realizing that it's not fish they're after. There are all these things that we seek, even in fishing. He might have been literal about it. But it's not the fish, you know, if you know people who fish, really. It's something deeper than that. And we can spend our lives looking for things and forget that what we really most deeply long for is here in us. If we lose something, says Rumi, it's hidden nearby. If we gain something, it was here all along. What we're looking for is what's true in us. The place to rest is in what's true. The place to rest is only in this heart. If you don't have a peaceful heart, you can't rest anywhere. And when you find a peaceful heart, then you found the true place of rest. So we can trust our capacity, the capacity of our heart to hold this world, We can trust that what we long for is there within us. And we can also trust that it knows how to open. Because it does. This small sense of self, the body of fear, the sense of separateness, the grief, the pains in our body, the things that are unfinished. If you sit and bring your compassion and attention, like a flower, the petals open one by one. And they know how to open, absolutely. The rain is free only in its falling. The clouds are free only to follow the wind. If you love the law, if you enter singing into the law, you will be happy. This is from Wendell Berry's poem. You will be free. To sit is to enter into this human form and accept what we have been given, this amazing human birth. Now sometimes, I guess the last question I'll talk about, that we start to meditate and let ourselves really open and be present and find this receptivity like my friend Wendy, which can then move through the world without with strength but without bringing harm. We find this compassion or this openness. But there comes, what about the rest of the world? What do we do? And so I have to answer that as well before ending. This is from Ajahn Sumedho, the English abbot. 
And he was speaking about this at the retreat he taught here last year, because it was in the middle of the, what was happening in Kosovo. And he said, what do we do when we sit? Those who live with an awakened attention see the suffering of others, the unhappiness, the misery, the unfairness, the corruption, the horrors of life. We're not blind to all of this, but we do not create additional sorrow, despair, anguish around our contact with these common human experiences of life suffering. When we're asked, how do we relate to the violence in the world, the warfare, the prejudice, the racism, the places where people are performing horrific acts? The question immediately arises, what can we do about it? How should we regard this? The answer is, mindfully. With mindfulness, we still feel what is impinging in our mind as unpleasant, ugly, unfair, horrific, because that is the truth of the way things are. But now we have the opportunity to choose how we respond. Usually we just react. When we hear bad news about violence and brutality, the persecution of innocent people, we feel indignant, outrage. We want revenge to punish the tyrants, those perpetuating these indignities. This is our conditioned reaction. When we hear bad news, we feel angry. When we hear good news, we feel happy. We don't have much of a choice in the matter because this is how we are programmed to act. When we discover mindfulness, we can respond instead of react. With an awakened mind and heart, based in seeing what is true, we can liberate ourselves from the momentum and habit of reactivity, of hating and fearing. And then we can respond to the experiences we have with a natural wisdom and compassion. For when we are mindful, we enter the natural state, our own true nature, which is pure and unconditioned. And what comes out of it is nothing but love. It feels really important to say that because we live as well in difficult times. Our own lives are busy and really too complicated, you know it's true for most of us. And that even as we experience the great prosperity that's given to many people in this country, although not all, there's a whole segment that it's not true for, we know that there are, is this injustice and we know that there's this suffering, not the kind we experience perhaps, we have our own sufferings but the very physical sufferings of hunger, illness around the world. So we say, what can we do? And what seems absolutely essential if we're to make a change on this earth is that we change our heart. Because no political change and no economic change has ever made a difference without being grounded in understanding and compassion. Otherwise, some new group comes in and throws the old group in prisons one after another, and we know it's true. So the dignity and the nobility that is within us as a human being and our own true nature, our Buddha nature, can be awakened. And whatever you do to awaken that becomes your gift to the world. 
It's how you raise your children and how you drive and how you live in your family and what the injustices of the world that you choose with your gift to help. And it doesn't mean all of them. You pick one. You have a particular gift and a particular task. If you do it with an awakened heart, you can really make a difference. And without it, you suffer, and unfortunately, everybody else does with you. From the Tao. The supreme good is like water. It nourishes all things without trying to. It is content with the low places that people disdain. It is like the Tao. The Tao says, in dwelling, live close to the ground. In thinking, keep it simple. In conflict, be fair and generous. In supervising others, try not to control. Ha! In work, do what you love. In family life, be present. When you are content to be simply yourself and don't compare or compete, others will respect you and the Tao will fulfill itself. So we sit, and we don't sit to have some particular experience, but to come back to this human life and live it with compassion and integrity and the freedom that is our birthright. Let's sit for a moment, please. Just a couple of very brief announcements and then we'll end with a chant and go out into the spring evening. One announcement, there will be no Monday night dinner for the next three weeks because they're doing some work in the kitchen to fix, remodel some things, fix things up. So um, that's the first. I'll be here next week and then the week after a very wonderful Tibetan woman named Ani Pachin, who was a princess and then a warrior um, in the fight against the Chinese takeover, and then in prison for a long time, and now a Tibetan nun, and a kind of remarkable figure will come and, and speak. That's in a couple of weeks. Um, 
And I just want to remind people to be very careful driving as you leave because it's lots of cars and um, take your time, you know. You've come here to meditate and to <laughs> drop back in to yourself. Um, you don't have to get in your car and on your, you know, cell phone and kind of hurry back out to the highway. Let it last a little bit, if you would. And if you haven't, if you've come Monday night and you've never done so, really invite you to come for a day long, try that, or a, a week's retreat, or longer if you wish. So the chant for tonight is this very simple chant. Um, we've done often in the Buddhist tradition, the, there's a text of uh, perfect wisdom in 80,000 verses that's summed up in 8,000 and then in 800 and in 80 verses, but also in one syllable. Um, and the reason the syllable is the sound of perfect wisdom or enlightenment is because it's the sound of opening or letting go. It's the seed syllable, ah, considered in Sanskrit the, the, the first sound in life and the last. So we'll just sing the sound, ah. As you do, you can feel what your body wants to let go of or your heart or your mind. We'll sing it for a bit. And then rest in that openness and go out into the evening. Ah, ah, ah. Add harmony. Ah, 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 ah. Take time to sit and take that seat this week to just rest and be with your breath and body and let your heart open and your mind be at ease. Do it for the sake of yourself and your family as well, your friends, the world. And uh, travel well as you go home and see you next week. Thanks a lot. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.